0: You guys, I'm so excited to welcome LashBinder.com as our newest podcast sponsor. I don't know about you guys, but when I try to put on false lashes, they are impossible. First of all, I get glue in my eye or they're falling off in the middle of the night. Well, LashBinder.com makes it so easy to put on your false lashes. It is ridiculous. And on top of it, I love the concept behind this. For every lash binder sold, they give one to a cancer patient who lost their eyelashes from chemotherapy. So not only are you buying a tool to help you put on your false lashes easily, but you're helping supporting women that are going through cancer and cancer treatments and making them feel beautiful also. So you guys check out lashbinder.com. Support them. We love them. Thank you guys. Thank you, Lashbinder, for supporting us. We appreciate it. Hey guys, welcome to the Shamelessly Feminine Podcast. I am Jen Rosenbaum, your hostess. And today I am here with Julie Peters and I'm so interested to hear what she has to say. Julie is a writer, a yoga teacher and the co-owner of Ocean and Crow Yoga Studio in Vancouver, BC with her mom, Jane. I know we have some listeners in Vancouver and you're not the first person I've interviewed that lives in Vancouver. So uh, that's (laughs) exciting. Uh, She's a staff writer for Spirituality and Health Magazine and she's the author of two books, her most recent book is, is called Want, Eight Steps to Recovering Desire, Passion, and Pleasure After Sexual Assault, and that came out in April of 2019. So I'm so happy to have her here because this is a huge hot topic right now and something not a lot of people are talking about uh, really openly and publicly. So I admire you for your bravery in that, and I really look forward to getting to know you. So tell us a little bit about you.
1: Yeah and thank you so much for having me today. Um, I'm always happy to have an opportunity to have that conversation because um, I totally agree. Um, We are having, we're kind of in a moment of having a lot of conversation around, um, uh, you know, the Me Too movement and sexual assault being really common, but I find that the conversation tends to be much more focused on like, you know, trauma, the devastation of trauma. That's super important to talk about, that's great. But my book is really like what happens after that you know what happens once you've been through a situation like that and you kind of want to get back to life or like you know you know what what happens with dating you know how do you have a satisfying sex life after sexual assault how do you understand your identity like all of those questions that i was going through at the time um and uh it's it's felt really good to sort of offer a resource to people just to be thinking about those kinds of questions and um, be able to have you know not some global answers because everybody is different, but answers from my perspective I guess yeah, yeah
0: and i really i I want to say that this is really hitting home for me i am I am not a victim of sexual assault, however, it is the same with breast cancer i'm a breast cancer survivor, and this is something that i 'm working on a book and a program to help women get their lives back together after cancer because mm-hmm. I do think that these traumatic things happen in our lives it 's not just assault or cancer, it could be giving birth to a baby it mm-hmm. can be, There's so many things that women go through that we're then like forced to go back to our normal life, quote unquote, and and we don't recognize our life, but the life still
1: goes on without us, right? Absolutely. Yeah. And a lot of the research that I was doing, uh, when I was writing the book was around trauma and just trauma in general, like what happens to us with trauma and really whether it's birth trauma, sexual assaults, you know, um, any number of the devastating things that can happen, even something like neglect in childhood that we don't necessarily always think of as you know one traumatic event, like we can be traumatized in a lot of different ways. and the way that I've come to understand trauma, like my favorite definition of it is an unhealed wound. Mm-hmm. So it's just anything that has hurt you that doesn't feel like something that's easy to process and kind of understand. Um, and so for for most of us experiencing a trauma, whatever it may be, it kind of messes with our um, perception of what we think the world is supposed to be. Mm -hmm. And it messes with our identity, like who we think we are. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, you know, one of the things that I really discovered in the process of recovery for me and my experience was that it's really not about going back to anything. Mm -hmm. Um, It's really much more so about uncovering a new like, Mm like sense of self and a new perception on what the world is. Um, and really taking the lessons from whatever it is that you went through and letting those be your gems and riches, like letting those be the things that make you more compassionate, more empathetic, more present, uh, more uh, connected to your body. A lot of people who go through trauma, like you kind of can't get to the other side of it without having a really working on your relationship with your body, right? So Gosh, that, that's yes. a really, really big piece of it.
0: Yes. Yes. yes, You're speaking my language. And again, different traumas, but same concept completely. Um, So what do you offer readers with this book and how is it different than the other books out there about sexual assault and trauma?
1: Yeah. So a lot of the books that are currently out there about uh, sexual assault, including the ones that are about recovering, tend to be written from the perspective of of a clinician who's offering case studies. Mm -hmm. Um, And what I find so funny and ironic about books about trauma is that they tend to be full of stories of trauma, which can be traumatizing to right, read. Right. And like, you know, some of them I would be listening as audiobooks or trying to read and I would have to put them down because I just be like, this is so upsetting. I can't, I can't right. go on here. Like I'm trying to deal with my own trauma and now I'm having to read about these other stories as well. Um, and so, you know, there's a place for that. There's definitely usefulness to that. I read some really, really interesting um, and useful books in that process. But my book is from my perspective, somebody who's been through it. I'm not a clinician. There are no case studies. I'm not talking about anybody else but me. Mm-hmm. Um, and the book is organized into eight steps, which is mm-hmm. kind of tongue in cheek. Like, of course, it's not like a you know eight step journey to everything being solved in your life. Um, but the steps are things like the first step is survive, and the second second step is feel. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, rage, I think is the third step. Uh, there's a step about sex. There's a step about food. Mm-hmm. Um, and the, the very last step is actually about love because uh, again, going back to that idea of, of any kind of trauma, one of the things that it messes with is like love, like how we relate to people. Mm-hmm. Um, for, for so many people, trauma is fundamentally a relational wound. Like there's something about what happened that made us feel betrayed or unsafe in our communities or unsafe with the people that we're close to. Um, and so the last step is really about reconnecting and what that looks like, um, on a really deep sense, like romantically, but also otherwise in our, in our communities, how do we connect? Um, yeah. Oh, gosh, it is so, it's
0: so crazy because <laughs> as I'm writing my book, I have so many of these same steps. It's like, so, so you're like giving me, um, feeling, <laughs> feeling the, uh, the love and the, the understanding yeah. of that, because yeah, it's really also, how do you connect with other people? that haven't Mm -hmm. gone through this. And, you know, we, we are so um, big on like trauma changing us, but I think sometimes we have to put it in perspective and know that like everything that we do changes us good, bad, and otherwise, right. Mm -hmm. We're changing all the time. And that's one of the things that I remind myself when I look back and I go, well, I just want to be the way I used to be. I have to remind myself, even if I didn't have this trauma, I would still be a different person today than I was back then.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, you know, I think for me when I did that process of kind of looking back and having this sense of myself of like, you know, I'm broken now or tainted or like, you know, something is always going to be wrong with me forever. Um and I wish I could go back to that time before this thing happened. Um you know, the process of writing the book was there's lots of research in it. Like I definitely did a lot of research around trauma and things like that and female sexual desire and, you know, all kinds of research, but but really the the work of the book was delving into myself and my journey and what I'd been through and really kind of digging up some things um, mm-hmm. and and processing them and working them through. Um, and one of the things that I really learned about myself is that it first of all, it's really not just about this one experience. like mm-hmm. being a woman in our current society. And I mean, I shouldn't just say for women, you can be any different kind of gender and kind of be traumatized by the Mm -hmm. world we live in, because we live in a society that A, has a gender binary, and B, there's a lot of misogyny in our culture. Like, even if you haven't actually been sexually assaulted, Mm -hmm. um, something like 80 plus percent of uh, people who identify as women have been, you know, catcalled on the street, sexually harassed at work, like you know, felt disempowered in some way or another by the medical system, not listened to, like, you know, we have a lot of these experiences where we're kind of told over and over again, you have less value, you don't have power, you're helpless in this situation. I don't know anything about your experience with breast cancer, but I I imagine that being in the medical system was kind of challenging in that way, because, you know, people aren't always looking out for like your emotional best interests and sort of caring for you in a really scary time in Mm -hmm. going through what you're going through with your body. Um, And so, you know, that was something I learned about myself was like, wow, it didn't start here. It started Mm -hmm. like a long, it started like as soon as I realized that I had a gender and that gender is female, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And the other thing I learned was that looking back on myself and who I was before this whole thing happened, again, partly because of how we're socialized. I feel like I didn't really have a great sense of like what my sexuality meant Mm -hmm. and, and whether or not it was okay for me to feel pleasure and what Mm -hmm. it meant to feel pleasure, not just sexual pleasure, but, uh, you know, pleasure with food. That's so Mm -hmm. complicated for so many women as well, Mm -hmm. food. Um, and so, you know, going through this process really forced me to work on that relationship with myself and my body and also kind of stand up for myself a little bit in those ways and kind of recognize like. No, no, no. I Pleasure is a part of my healing. That's like a part of my birthright, really, to have a healthy and whole experience in my body. And that isn't something that we're just given at, at birth. You know, I mean, some of us may maybe have a better environment than others, but um, we, we kind of have to unlearn some stuff, I think, from our culture in order to get to a place where we do feel really empowered and, and strong um, as who we are, and so you know, I would never want to go back to who I was before. Of course, I wish it didn't happen to me. Uh, I don't wish it on anybody. But mm. um, the, the you know, the recovery process is really full of a lot of um, a lot of beauty and a lot of learning, and it's hard work, but it's so rewarding. Mm. And you know, I feel like that's also the the piece that I really want to impress upon my readers through this book is like, you're not broken. There's nothing wrong with you. Like something happened, and it sucks. And there's some work to do to go through that. But on the other side of it, you'll have even more than you ever had before. Mm. Like it's not something that's going to make you broken forever or destroyed forever. There's so much beauty that can come on the other side of that. Mm. And I think that that, that's so powerful. And I think that the joy component of that, because I talk about it too, the joy component of
0: that is a little bit of the nervousness that if you experience joy, then you're putting your guard down and that it might happen again. Yeah. And it's actually the opposite. Yeah. Right? Like, it's actually the opposite. The more joy, the more pleasure you feel in your life, the more aware you are of your body and your lifestyle and your circumstances and, you know, the the positions you're in. Because there are times... I- that I've had it where maybe I wouldn't call it a sexual assault, but you know, it was an uncomfortable situation, let's say, sure. and in the moment didn't know how to handle it, respond to it, or that it was even happening really. Yeah. Until afterwards, you go, Wait, you know what? That wasn't kosher. I don't feel good about what happened there. And I think that when you um, are more in touch with your pleasure, you're more aware of when there's pain. <laughs> you're yeah, like, no, absolutely. This is not gonna work. You know?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. One of my chapters is called pleasure. Mm -hmm. Um, And one of the things I talk about is pleasure's dirty little secret, which is that, um, in my opinion, if you're going to feel pleasure, um, you have to be able to feel everything. So a, a genuine experience of pleasure means being fully connected to everything that's going on in your body. And so as soon as we let in pleasure, as soon as we let in joy, we might also be letting in grief or rage or fear or like all of these other uncomfortable emotions that can come up as well. So what a lot of us do, especially if we've had an experience of trauma, which again, we can think of as like an unhealed or unprocessed wound, like something we don't totally know how to hold. Mm -hmm. um, The thing that we really want is to numb those feelings. Right. Mm -hmm. And so rather than feeling pleasure, we reach for, um, Numbing, we reach for, you know, in some cases, a- addictive behaviors or substances that like make us feel better in the moment because it's mm-hmm. like the relief of not feeling the negative feelings, but it's not actually pleasure. Pleasure yeah. is something else. <laughs> yeah. It's pleasure a removal is- of feeling. It's exactly. exactly. Yeah. 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 Which, which sometimes we need. Like, you know, mm. if, if that's something that, you know, anyone listening has done, we've all done it. We need it. Like, there's, it's a survival response to a degree. Like, Sometimes we need to pause <laughs> the mm-hmm. processing and just give ourselves a rest um, internally, and so that numbing has a place, but on the other side of it, to come back to that genuine pleasure, we need to have tools to handle the other stuff that comes up as well mm. and again, in our culture, we don 't talk about feelings very effectively we don 't teach like our children you know how to manage those big emotions necessarily, like maybe you know we 're getting better at it now. But um, we're not a super emotionally literate uh, culture. And so we don't have the tools to deal with those big emotions when they come up. But we have cigarettes, we have Mm -hmm. alcohol, we Mm -hmm. have chocolate, like, you know, we have overworking, like, these are all things that we can do to just like, not feel for a moment. Um, But that's not pleasure. Mm
0: -hmm. You know, we didn't, um, and I don't know if you want to talk about this, but do you talk about the actual, um, what you,
1: the experience that you went through in the book? yeah sure. so um I wanted to be careful not to give too many details about what happened um, mm-hmm. because of what I mentioned that sometimes hearing about you know someone else's experience can be traumatizing for mm-hmm. others, and I mean, it's tough because like you never know what's going to be traumatizing for people to read, and so you know I'm sure that there are some parts in the book that are that are difficult to read, but I tried to be really gentle with everything mm-hmm. that I was offering, um, but I'm happy to explain a little bit about what happened if you'd like. yeah, yeah. I would love that sure so um what happened to me was that I was, um, I was uh, basically uh, sexually pressured and assaulted by someone who I considered a best friend. Mm -hmm. Um, So it was a man who I really deeply trusted and really deeply, you know, felt was on my side. Um, And, you know, when it was happening, it kind of came along with like there was about a month or longer, like several months of kind of like pressure and slut shaming and all this stuff that at the time I didn't have a vocabulary for. I didn't totally understand what was going on, but it was stuff that made my self-esteem shrink, you know, and Mm -hmm. made me feel kind of bad about myself. And by the time something happened between us, it was something that I really wasn't consenting to, but felt Mm -hmm. really pressured into. And, you know, like you experienced, I didn't have the ability to kind of, you know, scream and yell and say no, and be really clear about my boundaries in the moment, because I didn't really, my boundaries weren't really, like, clearly, safely in check around Mm -hmm. me at the time. Mm -hmm. Um, Hard to do when it's with somebody that you know, and you think is trustworthy. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, so... That was basically the experience. It wasn't the most violent experience. Um, you know, it wasn't sort of the stereotype of what a lot of people think about as rape, which is like the gunpoint in the alley thing, mm-hmm. which does happen. But what I learned also in my, my research is that, you know, what happened to me has happened to a lot of people. Not everybody considers it a trauma for themselves, mm-hmm. but a lot of people do, or they might look back and think like for me for many years, I was just like, well, that wasn't, you know, that big of a deal. And so it can't really, you know, mean what I what I kind of think it means or whatever and it took me a long time to get comfortable saying like okay well whatever it was that happened like this is how I received it and it was traumatic for me like it did land as a trauma and I think it wasn't so much the, the violence of what happened which it was it was kind of like an emotional violence more than a physical mm. violence but it was really the, the betrayal, you know, that mm. that sense of like, oh, my gosh, my ability to trust people must be broken. Like, I must not be able to do this, which means I'm never going to be safe again. Mm-hmm. <laughs> know, and how do I ever trust my, my instincts with men? Um, you know, and so that was part of what made it traumatic for me. And, uh, you know, it was kind of scary at first to, to write the book because I did, you know, I sort of had this sense of like, well, what happened to me wasn't like mm. it wasn't extreme enough to warrant this book. Right. But what I have really learned in the process of writing this and talking to other survivors is that everybody thinks that mm-hmm. no matter what someone has been through, they always think, Oh, it wasn't that big of a deal. It, it wasn't could be as, worse. as bad. Like it yeah. could be worse. It wasn't as bad as what other women have been through. It's this funny way that we like are always trying to deflect away from our own wounds. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not sure why exactly, like maybe because we, we want to protect each other or because we're afraid of really, um, honestly saying the, the gravity of what it is that had happened to us, and also maybe partly because, like, we live in a culture where it's incredibly common that non-consensual things happen mm-hmm. between men and women. Where men, because of how they've been socialized, don't realize that what's going on is non-consensual. Um, women who've been socialized not to say no don't really know how to say no. So they don't really communicate that it's non-consensual, mm-hmm. and people end up getting traumatized even when that intention wasn't necessarily there. Right, right. which is what makes it really complicated. Like I don't think that, that, you know, my perpetrator was like, had in his mind, like, I'm going to rape this person. Like, I don't think that's what was going on in his head at all. But I think it was much more so like a deep socialization of feeling like, because I was a woman, I owed him something. Mm -hmm. And because he was like a quote unquote, nice guy, he deserved this experience. And like, he deserved it um, far beyond anything that I felt or anything that I wanted. Um, You know, and I think another piece of it is, again, because of how we're all socialized, most of us actually don't know how to be present when we're having sex. Mm. And we're so wrapped up in like the performance of the thing, or like I said, you know, this person owes me something, I deserve this, this is what's supposed to happen at mm. this point in the relationship, we should be doing this, I owe him this, Like whatever it is. We're so wrapped up in all the narratives of what's happening that we forget to actually be there mm. and pay attention to how we're feeling in our own body and how the other person's body is responding to what we're doing if we'd had that awareness he would have stopped it wouldn't have even started <laughs> right 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 <laughs> my body was rigid I was extremely stressed out like it was very uncomfortable for me and if he'd been paying attention and if he had cared enough about my feelings he would have um mm. it never would have happened but that wasn't the situation that I was in and that's something that I, I've had to really like come to terms with in understanding also like You know, it may not have been his intention to hurt me, but he did. And that Mm -hmm. was something that's very real for me. And that's just what I've had to kind of process and deal with throughout.
0: Yeah. And the the trauma isn't, we have to remember that the trauma is not measured by the experience. The trauma is measured by the feelings afterwards. And, you know, everybody has a different experience. Somebody else might be in the same exact position and say, well, whatever, he was a jerk, you know, and, and I didn't enjoy that. And I'm going to stop speaking to him or whatever and react a different way. And so for that person, it's not a trauma, but for you, it's a very real experience and a very legit trauma. And as women, we have to support each other in that.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And I think that, you know, Uh, victim blaming is something that um, is incredibly common. Um, And what I think most people don't realize about victim blaming is it's not just people in the community being like, oh, that's no big deal. He was Mm -hmm. just a jerk. You should have known better. But we do that to ourselves, Mm -hmm. right? Like it's, Mm -hmm. it's so much more strong that within ourselves, we think like, you know, I should have known better. Like what's wrong with me that I didn't stop that from happening.
0: Or boys will be boys or men and that's what they do, you know, it's where did we come up with this and i've said it to myself too i had a situation once and i've I've talked about this before on the podcast where um when i had i had a mastectomy and when i had my mastectomy my doctor told me that i wasn't going to feel hugs anymore and it was really upsetting and I, i put it out there on social media and then uh there was a gentleman that i had done some work for um who wrote me a note and and just said to me um you know don't worry about not feeling hugs. You know, next time I see you, I'll be sure to grab you in the ass. I'm sure you'll feel that. And he did by the way. And you know, at the time I was like, all right, whatever it was. As, and it was at a work event of all things. And I'm like, okay, it's a boys club where I work, you know, and it's a, it's a thing. And it's, And then like, as it went on, I was like, no, you know what? That wasn't okay. Like I I should have said something to him. But in the moment it's like, well, I don't want to embarrass myself. And I don't want to be that girl who in front of everybody says, excuse me, you can't touch me that, you know, like there there's, we still shrink ourselves and I'm a pretty outspoken person. So I would imagine for people who are not as outspoken or not even as, as aware, even though I wasn't so aware it's very difficult to, to understand, to process, to know if what happened was okay. Was it funny? Were you just trying to be funny? Like you're my friend. So maybe you just didn't get my sense of humor. You know, like yeah. there's, there's so many things that can go on in your head and, and make excuses for other people and their behaviors, but it's really about how it makes you feel. If you walk away feeling like, Oh, I feel icky right now. That's a huge sign that something isn't right.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. And there's a piece too that I learned about that uh, really helped me to change a lot of that perspective, um, which is something called tendon befriend. Um, So for uh, many years, uh, stress responses were only ever studied in men. um, Partly because like women often aren't studied in medical uh, cases because we have periods. So we have like fluctuating hormones, which messes up the doctor's like you know research or whatever yeah um and so uh you know our understanding of stress mostly fight or flight um was only ever studied in men and nobody really thought of studying women's stress responses until uh the 1990s with Shelley taylor mm-hmm. and what she discovered was that studying um human females and also primates and sheep i think there were a couple of other animals that she studied But she found that there was this other stress response that uh, females tend to do, which is called tendon friends. So the idea is that, um, you know, for a male, fight or flight makes sense because Mm -hmm. men uh, or males tend to be stronger. They can run fast, like whatever Mm -hmm. it is. But the female mammals will have they might be pregnant. They might have a helpless baby to take care of. Mm -hmm. And so fighting or running away aren't going to be the most adaptive strategies to protect that helpless baby. And so what female mammals learn to do is tend and befriend. So what they're doing is looking for allies. So they look for other people who who can help to protect them when they can't protect themselves. Mm -hmm. And so um, the rush of cortisol and adrenaline that male mammals get, and female mammals do get this sometimes too, um, but instead of that, sometimes female mammals get a rush of oxytocin instead, which is actually the bonding hormone. Mm. And so the instinct that we have is not to run or fight. It's actually to placate, to please. Mm-hmm. And if the, the the man or the male that is attacking or threatening us is someone we already trust, our instincts are going to go in to say, how can I calm him down? How can I give him what he wants? Um, how can I make sure that he stays my friend because I need his help to protect myself, right? Mm-hmm. And so, so many women have these experiences where they look back and they think like, why did I just stay silent? Why did I just do what he said? Why did I make him feel better in that moment? Mm. Why didn't I just run or fight or tell him he's a jerk, fuck off, right? Right. Sorry. (laughs) Please don't apologize for dropping
0: (laughs) f-bombs on my podcast.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Um, But this is the reason why, like we have a survival instinct and that survival instinct works really well. Mm. And so for many of us in that moment, letting it, like quote unquote, letting it happen, you know, uh, remaining friends with him, protecting his feelings, all of this stuff they're not things that we did that were a failure of our survival. They're things that we did actually that are, uh, uh, lead to the success of our survival. So they're really, um, this is a, a totally valid survival instinct that is a part of what makes us powerful, not what makes us weak or bad or stupid,
0: mm-hmm. right? Which is why it's so easy for one woman to look at another woman. Even like th- this uh, rings true, I think, also in abusive relationships where they look at a woman and they say, "Why are you still there? Just leave. He's not treating yeah. you nicely." And and but the woman in the situation, her brain isn't working the same way doesn't yeah. see it. Yeah. Yeah, so
1: absolutely. I, be yeah.
0: able to support each other, to say, you know, hey, I want to check in with you and maybe bring your attention to something, or this yeah. is how I'm seeing it. I just want you to kind of, you know, know, or what, however that, you know, works, however you're close yeah. to somebody or, or whatnot. Yeah,
1: absolutely. And, and for women who are in abusive relationships as well, um, they're trying to survive. Like the, the main reason why they stay is because they're trying to survive. And like, you know, the statistics show that, Uh, when a woman leaves an abusive relationship, that's when she's most likely to be killed by her partner. Right. So, you know, the, the work that that woman is doing day in and day out is keeping him calm, pleasing him, keeping him on her side so that he doesn't kill her. Right. And that's subconscious, right? It's not necessarily something that's happening consciously. Um, but these women know that if they fight back, if they run, if they leave, that's when they're going to be even less safe than they are staying there, Mm -hmm. trying to read his moods and keep him calm or whatever. And so, you know, so many women who've come out of abusive relationships have shame about what they've been through. And they think Mm -hmm. like, oh, you know, I, I was stupid then, or like, I didn't know how to stand up for myself or whatever. It's like, no, you were, you were doing your best to survive. Like that was the situation that you were in and that was how you got through it. And that is okay. Like it sucks. Of course we don't want to be in that situation but we're always doing the best we can to survive. And I think it's really important to honor our bodies and the way that our bodies are always trying to help us get through, even if what they're doing is you know, not adaptive in the long term. Mm, absolutely. So one of the, um, the things that you talk about is food. And I'm curious how
0: food fits into the practice of healing and recovery for you and, and what the correlation is.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, food is huge. So um, Uh, firstly, food plays into something that a lot of women deal with in our culture, which is just the anxiety around body image. Um, And so, you know, most women have struggled with food in some way or another at some point in their lives, partly because our society is always telling us our bodies aren't good enough, too fat, too thin, too this, too that. Um, And so, you know, one of the ways that we try to control our environment, especially when we feel unsafe, is by controlling our food. Um, so that's a a piece of it. And, and, uh, I have a history of anorexia. So when I was a teenager, I had anorexia for a couple of years. And so, you know, that was something that looking back on, I realized was not, it was not about losing weight really ever. It wasn't necessarily about body image. It was about control. Mm -hmm. And it was about trying to make my body feel safe in a world that felt really unsafe for me. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, when I was young, you know, just sort of like, at that precipice of puberty, getting catcalled on the street and having sexually threatening comments being thrown at me and a few other things going on, I started to feel like my body was not a safe place for me to be. And so if I stopped eating, I felt more in control. And if I started disappearing, I would have less body to threaten my Mm -hmm. safety with, right? Again, Mm -hmm. subconscious. I wasn't thinking this consciously, but that was kind of how it was going through for me. And so, you know, food restriction is still something that I know something's wrong when I start doing that, mm. right? Like I know that I feel out of control or I feel super stressed or something's up if, I, if I'm not eating enough. Mm. And so um, for me, that was sort of a symptom that came up around the trauma that I had to deal with. But it's not just about that. Food is also, I think, a really fundamental representation of relationship. So the very first, one of the very first things that we learn as babies is that food comes along with affection and being held by a caregiver, right? Mm. And so food and love are associated for us on an unconscious level from a really, really young age. We can also think about food as like, in order for me to be a person, in order for me to survive, in order for me to have a body, I have to consume things that are in my environment. So I have to be in a relationship with my environment. I can't just be a self all alone, right? And when I tried to do that, when I was a teenager, just be a self and not engage with my environment around me, that meant that I was disappearing and actually losing my life force as mm-hmm. I, was not, I was not in a relationship with my environment, right? So there's mm-hmm. sort of a deep metaphor around that. But what I found in my recovery was that food was such a beautiful place for me to practice some of the things that I was learning Um, specifically, um, that uh, hunger is a form of desire. Mm. And so if we feel hunger from our bodies, and we feed ourselves, we are feeding a desire, right? The feeling of fullness is um, a no signal coming from the body. And so when we feel full, and we stop eating, we're honoring our own consent. Mm. And so we don't often think about, like we think about consent between people, but we don't often think about consent within our own bodies, right? Like, is this something my body actually wants me to eat? Mm. Right. And is this something my body is actually saying no to in some way or another, like with this fullness cue or, you know, with something like a hangover, for example, Mm. that's the body saying, no, please don't do that to me again. Right. Right. (laughs) But if, but if we keep drinking, we don't listen. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) It's like, we're not really, we're not really honoring our own consent cues. Mm. And so, you know, when I was trying to relearn about desire and consent and what that meant i had to really practice it with myself it wasn't just about communicating with my lovers like i want this i don't want this whatever these are my boundaries i had to really learn them inside of my own body and there are lots of ways to do that but i felt like food you know you have to eat several times a day it's something you can literally practice every day Mm. and when you can eat with that mindfulness and that sense of like how is my body responding to what i'm eating or not eating and how much i'm eating and when and how and all these things you know, we can start to really experience pleasure, like we talked about, which is something that we are feeling fully in our bodies. Because food mm. is a wonderful source of pleasure. Like, of course, we should be getting pleasure from our food. Mm. But in our diet culture, in our weight loss culture, pleasure and food have been so divorced from each other, right? But, um, you know, being in that practice of like, okay, how can I be in my body? How can I o- honor my hunger and my desire signals and my fullness and, you know, not feeling so good signals? we're learning consent within ourselves. And once we have that in ourselves, it's much easier to practice that with other people. Mm. So you
0: brought that up about consent. Tell us what consent really means. I mean, how do you find better ways to experience that and explore that in your life post-trauma?
1: Oh yeah, I think consent is such a great topic and it's so much more complicated than I think a lot of people like to think of it as. Um, Obviously, verbal consent is useful. So, uh, you know, if someone says no, please stop, obviously stop, like that's sort of the basis of consent. But um, I think that it's really much more so about, like for me, consent means that both people have to be really fully present in their bodies. And they're, like I said before, paying attention not only to their own body, but also to the other person's body. And so you're not just listening to the verbal yes or no, because as we discussed, tendon befriend can sometimes stop a person from saying, mm. no, please stop, because they don't feel safe to do that for whatever reason. But if that person is, their body is becoming rigid, if their breathing has become short, if they're sort of turning away from you or pushing you away in some way, or their body language is in some way saying no. If you're fully present in your body and you're present with their body, you can feel that pretty fast. Mm. Um, And then you can sort of pause and have a conversation about it. And so I think the verbal piece is really important. And um, yes, of course, we need to get more comfortable with saying, yes, I like that. Yes, please more. Um, or, no, that doesn't make me so comfortable. I need a pause right here. Can we take a breath? I don't like that. Whatever it might be. No, completely. I've changed my mind, whatever it is. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the, the verbal communication is definitely a skill to, to work on. But um, in order to uh, truly be consensual with another person, which is like that yes, please, more feeling, um, we need to know how we're feeling. If we're not connected to our own bodies, we're not going to be able to tune into that for ourselves or the other person. And so both people have to be really present and really be there. And Mm -hmm. so, you know, I think this is a pretty high standard for consent. Um, I think for, again, for a lot of us, for a lot of reasons, we're not fully present with our bodies. We're not fully present with our sexual desire or sexual pleasure, and we're not fully present with the person that's in front of us. And so it's a practice to, um, you know, again, you can practice it with food. It doesn't even have to be sexual. You can practice it with masturbation too, but it doesn't have to be that. Like when you are consuming a food, like, are you chewing? Are you smelling it? Are you paying attention to how it feels in your body? Or are you just scarfing it down because you're on your way somewhere, right? Mm -hmm. Um, So you can practice that sense of like, how am I experiencing this? How is pleasure happening for me? do i want more of this or is my body telling me to stop like just beginning by asking those questions in our own bodies Mm. clarifies consent hugely when we're interacting with another person but it is a daily practice like there are a lot of ways that a lot of us numb out because we have to and we're busy and it's okay like it's not shameful to do that sometimes but if we really want to be in consent and pleasure we have to start with ourselves.
0: Mm, I think that that's such a, a great way to sort of wrap up everything that we're talking about although there's a million other things that we could talk about. We could go oh, on yeah. about this <laughs> for a long time but I, you know because this is really um you really opened my eyes also about this consent with self I think is mm. especially that is really important, really important and getting connected to that because you know listen we all do this too. I mean if anybody out there is married, you know like you're husband will say, Oh, you know, I want to go here. Is that okay? And you go, yeah, whatever you want. And you're thinking in your head, no jerk. I don't want you to go. You should know (laughs) that I don't want you to go. You know, right. Like we all sort of give these mixed signals, not just to somebody else, but to ourselves about, you know, why can't I stand in my power and be able to say, you know what? No, I really don't want you to do that. And this is why, or, you know, let's have a conversation about it. It's, it's, I've been saying this for a long time that it's time for for people to reconnect in a different way. And it's very difficult yeah. when we are so distracted by social media and our phones and the rush of life, you know? So I think really connecting with yourself is a great way to start with that because you're with yourself all the time. You have no You're with choice. yourself all the
1: time. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. And you know, like you say, if you're consistently crossing your own boundaries by overworking or not sleeping when you need to or not eating when you're hungry or whatever it is, like when you're consistently ignoring those signals that are coming from your body that are saying, I need this, or please stop, or I don't want that. Um, it's so much harder to have that consensual experience with somebody else. Like we need to, te- really, we need to really teach ourselves that how we feel matters. Yeah. And, and teach most, a other lot of people. Us are not doing that. Yeah. And teach absolutely. other people how to treat us
0: too. And if we can't teach other people how to treat us, if we don't know, if we don't treat us.
1: Absolutely. With that, with that. Absolutely. Yeah.
0: So this was amazing. Thank you, Julie. Thank you for being so vulnerable to share your experience. Where can the listeners find you if they want more information?
1: So um, my book again is called Want Eight Steps to Recovering Desire, Passion and Pleasure After Sexual Assault." Um, you can get it on Amazon, you can get it at Chapters Indigo, whatever, you can get it wherever you get your books. Um, and if you want to learn more about me, more about the book, uh, my website is jcpeters.ca. There's also in, information on there about my yoga studio, which is called Ocean and Crow. So if you, do, if you are in Vancouver and you want to come take a yoga class with me and practice some of that self-consent, whatever, I teach a lot of that in my yoga classes. Uh, we're on Commercial Drive, so, so come and see us there. Um, And you can find all that info at jcpeters.ca, or you can also follow me. I'm usually mostly on Instagram at juliejcp. Amazing. Thank you so much for taking time with us today. Thank you so much for having me. It's been
0: an absolute pleasure. You guys, if somebody that you know needs to hear this podcast, please feel free to share it with them. And I would love for you to give us a five star rating wherever you listen to podcasts so that more people can find our podcast and we can help change the world. Love you guys. Thanks for listening and I'll catch up with you next time.